thank you, and we do see this morning in John chapter 2, the first recorded miracle that Jesus does, the first sign that Jesus does. Why do signs exist? Why do signs exist? They exist to point us to something or someone else, and this morning we're going to see the first sign that Jesus does. You see a sign on the road, it tells you to stop, it tells you the hospital's this way, it tells you something else, to do something else. It doesn't exist for its own sign. There's no sign on the side of the road that says, this is a sign. Right? That's not a, I mean, it's true, but it would defeat the purpose of the sign. It points to something else. What Jesus does is he does signs that reflect who he is, that fulfill the scriptures. See, the scriptures is God's gift to us, written down an errant word from a holy God, how we may know him and interact with him and and rejoice and live in Him and abide in Him and know Him, a holy God and yet broken sinful people in relationship. And so He gave us scriptures that would speak of the Messiah. This word, Messiah Christ, same words, one Hebrew, one's Greek, the Messiah. So when you hear the word Messiah, you should think of Christ. And when you hear Christ, you should think of Messiah. And the Scriptures gave us, God gave us through history, a multitude of characteristics that would reflect the Messiah. And among them would be signs that He would perform, signs that He would do that would actively declare His identity so that the people of God would see that this really is Him. It's the one we've been waiting for for generation after generation after generation who would make all things right. It's the Messiah who would bring true justice and true peace. One of the dangers that we're going to note this morning in, in all of Jesus' signs is the danger of longing for the sign more than the sign giver. This is what will happen regularly through the Gospel of John and Jesus' interaction with religious leaders and other people. will be their longing not for Jesus, not for the Messiah, the, the one that Scripture's foretold of, but for what they hope the Messiah can do for them, whether it's a meal or some other area. The signs are gifts that God gives, reflecting His glory, but pointing to the sign giver. Signs point to someone or something, in this case, the identity of the Messiah. And this morning, in the first sign that Jesus does, He turns water to wine. Water to wine. We know when Moses, under God's leadership, is is is, is to set the people free, what's the first miracle that takes place, the first sign of judgment? He turns water to blood. And now the Messiah comes and he turns water to wine. So as before we dive into our text that Zach, one of our elders, read for us, I want you to flip over to Isaiah 25. Look to Isaiah 25 just so we can appreciate a little bit more of what the Hebrew people would have been thinking at Jesus' first sign. Yes, he does a sign that itself is miraculous. It's amazing, an ordinary for man, but certainly capable for God who maintains all the physics and aspects of the universe. Then this sign that he does, why are we reading this text first? We're going to read Isaiah 25, we'll, we'll read about 4 through 9 or so. It's because it's not just the miracle that he does, but the miracle that he does would give the Hebrew people even more expectation and excitement of who he is. For in the Old Testament, we see that wine and vineyards are depicted with the time of peace. It's kind of like when your week gets too crazy. Just a 
just a wild week. Everything chaotic seems to be happening. You're not going to be able to have the time to take care of the flowers, to do gardening, to do things you may normally do if you had the time that peace naturally brings. So too in Israel, when they're at war, when they're in conflict, they don't have time to tend to the vineyards. It's a time of peace. So what God gives us, and, and He says of in the Scriptures, is that when the Messiah comes, there will be, the land will be flowing with wine and milk and water, because it will be a sign of blessing and peace that is ushered in, on the other hand, with judgment upon the evildoer of all the world. So look to Isaiah 25, 4 through 10, and keep this in your mind as we think about Jesus coming and turning water to wine, making wine flow from water. Verse 4 of Isaiah 25, page 585, if you're in the Pewback Bible. The text says, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined for many years and years. And, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In verse 8, the good news, He will swallow up death forever. Death will die. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord, Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The book of Joel gives a very similar type idea that the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. So when Jesus comes and He performs this first sign at this wedding feast, of water to wine. The observant Hebrew who knows the Lord's Word is hidden the Torah, the Scriptures in his heart. He would have seen not only something miraculous, but this is the one who causes the vineyards to grow. This is the one that brings the sweet, good wine. For generation and generation, they long for the Messiah and budding in their minds would be the thought of, He's here. He's here. Not only He's here, but He's there. He's in the town over. Let's go see Him. The excitement of what the sign does, the sign would lead them not to go and see if there's any wine left over. The excitement of the sign would lead them to go and to follow Him, the Messiah, the excitement will be exploding in their minds. So, let's look now at three realities that this ought to have brought into the mind of a good Jew, that this would have ought to bring into our minds if we come to believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you believe Jesus is indeed the Messiah, it has ramifications for your life. The first is this, that the Messiah is worthy of total obedience. Said another way, He's worthy of your allegiance. 
The Messiah is worthy of your obedience and he's worthy of your allegiance. That's what we saw with John the Baptist's disciples, remember? John the Baptist's disciples are following after him. They see that Jesus, the Messiah, it's him. So they leave John and they follow after Jesus. This is the ramifications for our life. If we believe Jesus is the Messiah, we ought to then give him obedience. More precisely, we ought to give him our allegiance. How did the Hebrews interact with God in the Old Testament? How did the Hebrew people interact with God? Well, they interacted with Him in His temple. That was the center of life, the presence of God. They would come, they would make sacrifices, they would aim to keep the Torah, the law, aim to abide in Him as His distinct people. The purity laws that were given, they would aim to follow and to keep, abiding in the Word and the way of God. And now Jesus comes, the Messiah. Something new is here. The old is passing away. Behold, the new has come. The people now to interact with Jesus, He is the one who, the Scripture says, tabernacled among us, templed among us. To interact with Yahweh is to interact and to follow and abide in Jesus, to trust Him, to pledge your allegiance to Him, to believe in Him. That is life. That is the new way. He is the way. So the ramifications for our life means that of obedience, and we see that in our Scriptures. In Genesis 41, flip to Genesis 41. I know you're just waiting to cannonball in John 2. I can feel your excitement. Before we do that, I want to look again to Genesis 41. Because what we're going to note this morning is just unbelievable parallels. God's Word is so unbelievably rich and delicious We can't mine its depths. It's absolutely incredible. What we're going to note in Genesis 41, while I'm having you flip over there, is you remember that scene Joseph has had just a a wealth of heartache in his life, and yet God continues to use him. We know the declaration that he'll give in Genesis 50, verse 20, later on, what what you have purposed for evil, he speaks to his brothers or bad, uh, God has used for good, and that good will be the deliverance of a multitude and multitude of people. And so, as you know, the story, God is going to bring famine, and He gives Joseph a wisdom, a blessing, a dream, a vision, an understanding of what's to take place. And He tells Pharaoh what's going to happen, and Pharaoh, hearing this, is ecstatic, just so excited what this means for our life. So, so as we note this, I want you to, to note in your mind, maybe even underline in your Bibles, what the wordage that Pharaoh uses, not only to his servants, but to all of Egypt when they come to recognize the Spirit of God on Joseph. So look at this, verse 37 of Genesis 41. This proposal that Joseph gave, it pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now scroll down to verse 55. The result becomes what? When all the land of Egypt was was, was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. What he says to you, do. 
you and I are to say of Jesus, the one in whom the Spirit rests and abides. All that you desire me to do, I will do. My obedience, my allegiance is to you, blessed one, anointed one of God. That's what Mary says. That's what Mary says to the servants. Did you see that? The same words. She goes to the servants and says, all that Jesus tells you, do it. Command, do it. Don't argue. Don't ask why. Do it. All that Jesus says, do it. See, Mary understands, the mother of Jesus, she understands that Jesus really is the sent one of God. He really is the Messiah. And she knows then the only rational thing is obedience. They're at this wedding party. How neat is that that Jesus is with people? How neat is that that Jesus and his disciples are with people? So they're at this wedding party. Wedding party here in this culture, like many cultures across the world, lasted multiple days and even a week. That's incredible. And in that culture, the groom, the groom's family, paid for the wedding. And as a father of two sons, I say, praise God, it's not like that here. If you have daughters, in your face. I don't know what I would tell you, but it's, I'm just glad that's not me. But in that culture, it was them. In that culture, it was them. Can you imagine paying for a wedding for a week? And here comes Jesus and all his disciples. And they're there and they're eating and drinking and they run out of wine. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? The shame. Legally, there's cases in which the bride would be entitled, her family would be entitled to sue the groom for the embarrassment that that would bring across their name. Now, that's not a great way to start out a marriage. So Mary hears that they're out of wine the embarrassment and the shame, and she knows who to go to, doesn't she? She goes to her son. She goes to, to Jesus, the Messiah. What, a, what an insight to us that in a moment of shame, we would go to Jesus, even though our hearts are often tempted to run from the Lord. Oh, that we would be like Mary and wise and go to Jesus. And she goes to Jesus and she does what perhaps you have done or I have done. I have definitely done this. Perhaps you have a friend that's mechanically gifted and you're over at their house or a family member. And you're sitting there, you're, you're watching something like the Chiefs play in the Super Bowl tonight. I don't know. And during halftime, you bring up, hey, uh, so my car, uh, it just keeps making this strange noise whenever I start it up. So weird. And what are you wanting to do when you bring that up? You're, you know the one that's mechanically gifted. You're hoping they'll do what? Let me take a look at that for you. Oh, okay, if you don't mind, I guess that'd be, that'd be fine with me. I mean, we have time. I guess it is halftime. You'd be thinking that. That's kind of what I think Mary does to Jesus. Comes to Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Son in flesh. And says, hey, they're out of wine. And what does Jesus respond almost with a rebuke? 
what does this have to do with me? What do you want me to do about this? And then we have an insight here. You see, Jesus didn't come to do the will of Mary. Though the situation would have, would have been shameful, Jesus didn't come to do the will of Mary. His beloved mother, he came to do the will of his Father who sent him. And he says, it's not yet my hour. And John's laying down what he picks up for us in John 17, 1. In John 17, 1, he answers this exactly. In Jesus' prayer in the garden, Jesus prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So he tells his mother here at the very beginning, my hour has not yet come. His hour will come, and it will come on the cross. His glory will be displayed on the cross, despising the shame. And so he's clear, even the closest of relationships between a parent and a child, the Son did not come and take on flesh to do the will of Mary. The Son did not come to take away even the shame and awkwardness of the situation. He didn't even come to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't simply come to do those things in themselves. These are signs that tell us Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is today worth the total allegiance of my life. That's the good news of the gospel. Not come to Jesus so you can go do signs. Come to Jesus so your life will be everything you dream it would be. It's Jesus is the Messiah. Come to Him. Period. That's the good news. Follow after Him. Abide in Him. Rest in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. So Jesus says very clearly in this way, Father, that the hour has, has, has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you later on in John 17. But here in God's kindness, listen, in God's kindness, the Son would choose this moment of embarrassment to be the time in which He would do His first sign. So you think of the text, you think of the visuals, that He would turn these possibly 150 to 180 gallons of pure water to wine. I'm kind of a visual person, we don't do this every week or too often, but, but over here we have three jugs. Each of them is a 55-gallon barrel. And these are all totally filled to the brim right now. Stephen is just that strong. <laughs> just if you... Incredible. This guy's amazing. And as a visual, he takes these things that were given, and as the wedding party, the good Jewish wedding party, was aiming to keep the purity laws, they would have had to wash in a certain way, maybe wash their utensils in a certain way. He takes these things and he tells the servants, they do exactly what Mary told them, is do whatever he tells you to do. He says, fill them up totally. He repurposes them, insight to who the Messiah is, to fill them up totally to the brim. And he turns them into wine. He takes away the shame of the situation and he makes it whole. Now the skeptic reading this should know a couple things. Number one, we, they should note, that because he filled them to the brim, there was no room to dilute with some wine to make it look like wine. No room for Kool-Aid packets or anything like that to distort the situation. It was totally full. Totally full. Jesus was going to bless this man and this family in unbelievable ways. The question becomes in our life as we think about the obedience of the servant, we think about the faith of Mary, we can make the mistake even in looking at a text like this to making somebody else the main character of the story. 
We can take a text in which it's a sign, the first sign that points to the identity of the Messiah, and we can imagine ourselves as somebody in there and lift them up above Jesus, even in this text. The story's not about the servants. It's not about Mary. It's not even about the embarrassed groom. The story is about the Messiah. Friends, our lives are not about us. Our lives are about pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. He is the sent one of God. He is our king. He is our forgiveness. He makes us beautiful. He makes us pure. He makes us holy. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Abide in him. Rest in him. Receive his forgiveness and aim to obey him and reflect his glory in your life. That's good news of this first sign. Secondly, We know that the Messiah is sovereign over both time and creation. Messiah is sovereign over both time and creation. Look back to verse 9. And the master of the feast, this master of the feast is is accurate, but this would have been like the head servant in the culture. Maybe like a wedding planner, you might think of, but different because this would have been a servant. Meaning this person would have started as one of the servants that were commanded at this wedding party to go and fill them up. So this person would have worked their way up. They would have known, the idea is that they knew what they were doing. They were experienced. They had tasted a lot of wine. The Scripture says, obviously, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This person knew everything about what it was to throw a proper wedding ceremony, a proper wedding party. They were experienced. They were the head servant in the banquet. Do we understand that? That's so huge that we catch this. This is not a novice. This isn't their first day on the job. This is somebody with maturity and experience and excellence. And they will make sure everything happens exactly how it's supposed to be. So look what they say. That's their credentials. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. So they didn't just know that this all of a sudden became wine a few seconds ago. Look what they say. Even though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast, he called the bridegroom over and said to him, so it's it's so wild, it's so good. He's never seen this before in his entire life, his entire career. Who knows how many ceremonies he oversaw? Hundreds, maybe thousands? He's so blown away that he says, you've got to get me the groom. I've got to talk to him. I've never seen this done before. Look what he says to him. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, because the, the taste obviously is dumbed down. Their senses are dumbed. But you have kept the good wine until now. Blown away. He says, this wine is unbelievable. You saved it for like the last few days? This is incredible. You're amazing. I can't, I've never seen this before. Oh, your generosity and kindness. They're not even going to appreciate how amazing this is. This is incredible. Can you imagine being the groom, hearing 
the master of the ceremony tell you this? What would you be thinking? You'd be like, I did? A moment of fear you would have had, an embarrassment and shame in thinking about your whole relationship with your family and your reputation forever. And suddenly now your reputation is one who is richly blessed, lavishly gracious. Your kindness overflows. Hospitality beyond hospitality. That's what being a recipient of grace does in our life, isn't it? Changes our story. Changes our reputation. That's what Jesus does in our lives. As recipients of grace, God's unearned favor that's lavished over us. He changes us. The man went from fear and working and thinking, what can I do to receiving the grace of Jesus and now simply receiving this new identity as one who is hospitable and gracious and kindness that overflows. That's what the Lord does for us, isn't it, church? He's changing us. We've received a new identity and we're called now to live out this identity for the Messiah is sovereign over both time and creation. He takes water and he makes it better than the groom's best wine. That's what he does for us. In love, he would embrace the cross, despising the shame. He makes us holy, pure, blameless, adopted, righteous, justified in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? If that water would turn into wine, I would have my mind blown right now, Stephen. <laughs> what joy is there in Christ? See, the master of the ceremony didn't know where the, it had come from. And if he was using his basic reasoning, cause and effect, he naturally reasoned, you've given me wine that's probably decades and decades old. You've saved it for the end of the feast. But no, Jesus, the one from whom and by whom all things hold together, in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3 tells us. He's able to control the elements. By reasoning and experience, he would be right. Well, that's got to be decades old. Why? Well, Jesus is sovereign over time and the elements. That's one worthy of your following, isn't he? He's one worthy of our worship. Third, we note that the Messiah's signs point us to believe in him, for he is enough. Lord, help us to believe that, right? Help us to believe that the Messiah is really enough. Messiah's signs point us to believe in Him, for He is enough. They do more than that. They reflect His glory. That's what He says in verse 11. Do you see that? Verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Look back to John 131, if you would. Look back to John 131. We see the same word here is actually used in the passive the active ESV translators use in our text of verse 11 as manifested His glory. In John 1.31, we see it's 
revealed His glory, revealed His identity. It's the same word, passive and active. See, in Jesus' baptism, it's shown forth passively. It's declared, this is the one, this is the one whom the Spirit rests. It's revealed passively, this is who He is. In Matthew, we have the Father declare, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Believe on Him. But here now, in the sign, Jesus actively, He did this. The water passively turns to wine. Jesus actively, sovereign over the elements, passively and actively making known the glory of God by abiding in the Messiah. My fellow believer, isn't that our lives? How do we passively reflect the glory of God? How do we passively do so? We do so by abiding in Jesus, by abiding in His Word, by walking by the Spirit, by asking for forgiveness, by repenting, by aiming to live our lives when it comes to relationships and, and sexually, by purity, by aiming to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, by default in a world that is lost and in darkness, slaves of sin and the flesh, we become salt that testify of God's glory passively. So as we aim to abide in Christ in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriage, in our career, in our calling that God gives us with our giftings, as we aim to look to Christ, what passively happens, the watching world looks and says, you're different. You're different. And what do we say? We say glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to the one that forgave me of my sins and adopted me. I want to please Him. I want to honor Him. I want to rest in Him. And therein we passively show the glory of God. We live as salt and light in the world. Actively, how do we show the glory of God? We intentionally speak of Jesus. Intentionally speak of Jesus. That takes boldness. And it takes love speak of the one we serve with our lives. That's the good news. God has placed us each in unique mission fields. Every single day we go a different route that God sends us on. And the beauty of a local congregation is we gather back together, we fix our eyes back on Jesus, we worship Him, and we encourage each other, we grieve with each other, we celebrate with each other, we serve one another. It's the family of God being transformed by the renewing of our, our minds. That's the good news for our life. The response that happens with the Messiah is what we have happen in John 20. Flip there. I've referenced it every week. It may end up referencing this verse every week. But look to John 20, verse 30. John 20, verse 30 and 31. So what does the Messiah call us to do? The Messiah's signs point us to believe in Him, for He is enough. The response that coming face to face with asking who is the Messiah, who is Jesus. It's meant to do what the disciples did at the end of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believed in him. Now this is the first of the signs that Jesus does, and there's many more signs to come. But John, at the end of this gospel, look what he says in John 20, 30-31. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He didn't give us all, but He gave us is sufficient. Verse 31, But these are written, these signs and these words are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. When we come face to face with who Jesus is, you and I and every one of us is confronted with, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? And that by believing, you may have life in His name. If you will turn and believe in Jesus, you will have life in His name and His authority. Forgiveness of sins and life eternal, life today and eternity with Jesus the sign giver. But don't make the mistake of pursuing Jesus for the signs. Listen to the account that the Lord gave us in His Word and readjust yourself focusing on Jesus, the sign giver. What we're going to see next week before our next steps, what we're going to see next week is that the word of this miracle spreads everywhere. And many will come to Him and they will believe the type of believing that they will do is they will be excited that, no, this, this may really be the Messiah. Did you hear what he did? The water to wine, the wine, the vineyards flowing, this really him. And they follow him. And Jesus, knowing what's in the hearts of men, will not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knows they do not desire him as Messiah and Lord of their life. They desire to use him for more signs. And we'll see this clash happen again and again and again. In John chapter 6, it hits this huge explosion. So we ask as we look to our next steps, what a beautiful prayer, what a beautiful request we can make as individuals and as a congregation. We can easily make the mistake of chasing signs rather than the pure sign giver to whom they point. Now here's the question, how might remembering this impact my prayer life this week? We pray to the Lord to ask the Spirit, Spirit of God, would you search my heart? Would you search my mind for perhaps areas in my life where I am tempted to long more for what you can give me or do rather than you? Would you help to show those, expose those in my heart, those restlessness things in my heart that I may be looking at kind of in a way of an idol? Not simply a prayer request, but, but more. Something in which we're tempted to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're great, but I really want you because I want that. And ask that the Lord would show that. And as you have brothers and sisters in your life that you can know and trust, and you're saying, you know, I don't know, you can just ask them, do you, do you think there's anything in my life that you know of that I might be making into a sign that I long for more, am longing for more than the sign giver than what I'm aware of? It's a beautiful honest conversation to have with the Lord and with your church family. Secondly, Pharaoh wisely told his servants to obey Joseph. Mary wisely told the servants to obey Jesus. How in my life will I be wise to act like them and simply, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you've never trusted Christ, 
What you're to do is to pledge your allegiance to Jesus today. Receive forgiveness of sins and trust in Christ. He is the Messiah. He's worth your life. Abide in Him. Trust Him. Confess Him. Be not ashamed. For many of us who know Jesus, we simply ask, Lord, would you show us in our hearts? Is there, is there a relationship? Is there a component of my life that I know I just need to do what you desire me to do? And I've been hesitant in that way. Would you give me boldness? Would you give me wisdom? What joy and freedom do we have in Christ? Isn't that good news? Let me pray for us before we stand and respond in song. We thank you, God, for truth. We thank you, God, for good news. We thank you, Father, for giving us your Son. That you would love us while we were yet dead in sin. You would give us hope and forgiveness, adoption and grace by believing in Him. We thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives. We thank you for the way you've working in our church body. We thank you for the way you're working in this community. God, would you give us the wisdom and boldness to live as signs pointing people to you. Oh, Lord, we love you. Spirit, we pray that you would bring back to remembrance this week your word and that would use it to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. Be with those who grieve this week. We trust that you will and we know that you are. We thank you for the love we have in Jesus. And all God's people said together, amen. We stand together as we sing.